In reality, no nation is composed altogether of good people or of bad people. When Peter came to the house of Cornelius, he said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is acceptable to him. Acts 10 verses 34 and 35 And when God was about to destroy Sodom, Abraham's momentous question was, even regarding wicked Sodom, Wilt thou consume the righteous with the wicked? Genesis 18.23 The answer is that as regards inheriting the kingdom or being consigned to the eternal fire, which are sentences pronounced in this judgment, the individual stands on his merits regardless of the state of the majority of the nation. In our own nation of America, no doubt only a minority of the people can be described as truly Christian. Yet if Christ were to come today, would anybody insist that the minority should be punished along with the majority? Or are we to believe that today we as individuals are to be held responsible for all that our government does? We certainly hope not. That the judgment scene in Matthew 25 has to do not with nations but with individuals should be clear from the fact that the things the righteous did and the unrighteous failed to do are things normally done by individuals. The giving of food and water and clothes and shelter and particularly their visiting him when he was in prison. Furthermore, if the wicked nations are sent into eternal punishment at the beginning of the millennium, there would be no such nations left on earth during the millennium over which Christ is supposed to rule with a rod of iron. Nor would there be any wicked nations at the close of the millennium, concerning which we are told Satan is to come forth to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the war, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. Revelation 20 verse 8 Unless the millennium is to be looked upon as more of a period for apostasy than for evangelism. The correct interpretation of the judgment scene in Matthew 25 hinges on the meaning of the expression, all the nations. Verse 32. A few chapters later, this same expression is used in giving the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Here it clearly means the individuals of the whole human race, since only individuals can be taught and baptized. So why should it have any other meaning in Matthew 25:32? Paul uses the same expression in Romans 16:26 to mean everyone in general when he says that the mystery of the gospel was not revealed in earlier ages now is made known unto all the nations. There is no reason to believe that it has any other meaning in Matthew 25:32. And how unreasonable it is to suppose that Christ would pronounce nations righteous or blessed merely because they had treated non-Christian or anti-Christian Jews in a kindly manner. God took their nation away from them and drove them out because they rejected his Christ. And as long as they remain in their apostate state, there hangs over them the sentence recorded in 1 Thessalonians 2.16, that wrath is come upon them to the uttermost. Furthermore, there is no reason to believe that Jesus would use the term brethren for those who are unsaved 
merely because they are Jewish nationals. On ten different occasions in the Gospels he used the terms my brethren or my brother and these emphasize that for him the spiritual ties of faith in himself and obedience to God the Father supersede the ties of race and family. As when he said, Whosoever shall do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. Matthew 12.50 Never once does he use one of these terms to include unbelieving Jews. Rather, he denounced unbelieving Jews as of your father the devil. John 8.44 Furthermore, it is worth noting, as Greer points out, that while the word nations is a neuter noun in Greek, the pronoun immediately following is masculine. Before him shall be gathered all the nations, neuter, and he shall separate them, masculine, one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. The use of the masculine pronoun points to individuals rather than nations. A quote from the momentous event, page 50. Rutgers remarks, It would almost seem superfluous to refute such a wild hypothesis that the nations are judged as nations, the basis of their judgment being their treatment of the Jews. As salvation is personal, individual, so too the judgment will be personal, each one being rewarded or punished according to his deserts. A quote from Premillennialism in America, page 223. And Brown says that this interpretation is so preposterous that nothing but the exigencies of a hard-pressed theory could ever have suggested it. A quote from the Second Advent, page 253. We have given this particular judgment of the dispensational system a disproportionately lengthy treatment because it forms such a vital part of that doctrine. If this is shown to be without foundation, there does not remain much reason for holding on to the other separate judgments. The fifth is the judgment of Israel. Not all dispensationalists acknowledge that there is to be a separate judgment of Israel. As we pointed out earlier, some have as few as four. But Schofield has seven, and this is one of them. It seems somewhat inconsistent that there should be a judgment of Israel after Christ returns, for according to this theory the Jews, gathered in Palestine before his return, are to be converted en masse at the mere sight of their Messiah. Also Paul makes the statement that all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11.26, generally understood by dispensationalists as referring to those on earth at the time of his return. Some writers connect this with the Great Tribulation, the continuing seven-year period between the rapture and the revelation, these visitations of suffering on Israel being a form of judgment so that a remnant calls on the name of the Lord and he comes to their deliverance. But W. L. Pettengill, one of the collaborators in the production of the Schofield Bible, says, This judgment will take place on earth in the wilderness of Judea after the return of Christ in his glory and will be for the purpose of sifting out the rebels against Jehovah and his rule. These will be kept from entering into the land of promise in connection with the setting up of the kingdom of David. Study Ezekiel 20, verses 35, and chapter 34, and Psalm 50 for details. A quote from God's Prophecies for Plain People, page 44. The sixth is the judgment of fallen angels. This judgment is based on Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3. 
Know ye not that we shall judge angels? The church is to be associated with Christ in this judgment. Dispensationalism has not been able to fix the time and place. However, Murray well says in criticism that there does not need to be any doubt as to when this shall take place. Scripture is so plain and definite on the matter that only an inordinate affection for numbers would lead men to regard the judgment of fallen angels as a separate judgment. And the angels which kept not their estate but left their own habitation he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Jude 6 The great day is the day of which Christ, Paul, and others have spoken when all humanity shall appear before God's throne of judgment. A quote from Millennial Studies, page 171. The seventh and last of this series is the great white throne judgment. This is based on Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. It occurs at the very end of the millennium and is a judgment of the wicked dead only. None of the righteous can appear, for they are all said to have been included in the first resurrection and the judgment of believers' works, which occurred at the rapture. It would seem, however, that the righteous who died during the millennium, as well as those on the earth at the end of the millennium, should be included in this final judgment, otherwise they have no judgment at all. The only way to avoid this conclusion is to assume still another and special resurrection and judgment for them. Such are the vagarities to which this theory leads. But that Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 describes not a judgment of the wicked only, but of both the righteous and the wicked, is strongly indicated by the fact that the book of life is opened and the judgment proceeds from that. The statement that, if any was not found written in the book of life, he was cast into the lake of fire, instead of proving that only the wicked are judged, actually indicates the opposite, namely, that the large majority were found written there and were saved, and that it was only an occasional name that was not found. This agrees with our view expressed earlier that eventually the large majority of the human race will be saved, and that heaven is immensely larger than hell. It would in fact seem a mockery of the worst kind to have this precious record of God's redeeming love brought into court only to be used as an instrument for condemning to hell all who are then judged. What a strange use the dispensationalists make of the book of life. Surely we would expect the book of life to be used in a positive way, proclaiming that those whose names are written in it are pronounced just and assigned to their heavenly rewards. The dispensational scheme is, therefore, so seriously defective in its doctrine of the judgment that this alone is sufficient to call in question if, in fact, it does not destroy the whole system. Who can read all this guessing about a continuing series of judgments without realizing how wrong is a system which leads to such results? These distinctions find no basis in Scripture but are the product of a fertile imagination and a wrong method of interpretation. Christ said, The hour cometh in which all that are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of judgment. John 5 verses 28 and 29 At the same voice all come forth to judgment. None of his hearers could have understood the Lord to have spoken of a series of judgments extending over a period of a thousand years. Paul says, 
He hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained. Acts 17.31 On different occasions Christ spoke of the judgment, implying that there would be but one. Matthew 5 verses 21 and 22 and chapter 12 verses 41 and 42 Repeatedly he spoke of the day of judgment. We are convinced that there is but one general universal judgment that it occurs at the end of the world and that it includes all men, believers and unbelievers, the living and the dead. The two most prominent judgment passages in Scripture are Matthew 25 verses 31 through 46 and Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. These two describe the same event. Matthew places the emphasis on what happens to the living while Revelation tells what happens to the dead. Matthew makes no mention of a resurrection and Revelation, describing the event as occurring after the end of the world, makes no mention of any living. The uniform view in scripture is that the coming of Christ is the occasion for judgment. On the other hand, dispensationalism divides into several parts and distributes over a period of a thousand years that which the scriptures represent as one unified, majestic, divine transaction. Chapter 12, page 284, The Kingdom The primary difference between the post and amillennial view on the one hand and the premillennial view on the other as regards the kingdom has to do with whether or not the kingdom is spiritual in nature, now present in the hearts of men, the outward manifestation of which is the church, or whether it is political and economic, absent from the earth at the present time, but to be established in outward form when Christ returns. There is indeed a considerable difference between these two viewpoints, as is shown by the quite divergent systems of theology that have developed around them. The postmillennial view leads its advocates to feel that they are now engaged in an age-long and worldwide campaign to establish the kingdom in the hearts of men everywhere, and to take a high view of the church regarding it as the divinely established agency through which that conquest is to be made effective. The premillennial view, on the other hand, leads its advocates to believe that the kingdom is not in the world at the present time, that its establishment and glory and accomplishments belong to a future age that is to be quite different from the present age, and so fosters a comparatively low view of the church as a temporary or interim agency. Amillennialism agrees in the main with postmillennialism in its view of the kingdom, although it does not hold that the world is to be converted to Christianity. In discussing the kingdom postponement theory, we said that dispensationalism holds that the kingdom was offered to the Jews at the first advent, but that when they rejected the offer it was withdrawn, and that it now is held in abeyance until the return of Christ, at which time it is to be established by overwhelming power. No kingdom without the king is their motto. One writer says, Jesus will be a king in as direct and positive a sense as any ruler the world has ever known, but with larger and more autocratic sway. A quote from Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, God's Methods with Man, page 115. And another says, Our hearts may well rejoice because someday, and probably very soon, Christ will return to this earth, and in mighty power will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He will force all nations to bow to him and obey his word, 
and Jerusalem will become the capital of the world. A quote from the article in the commentator, Organ of the Kansas City Bible College, November 1953. That the kingdom is now in the world and the present reality is taught in the following references. And being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God cometh, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here or there. For lo, the kingdom of God is within you. Present tense. Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17. Things which are a present-day reality in Christian experience and enjoyed by God's people everywhere. We are to give thanks to God the Father, who delivered us out of the power of darkness and translated us, past tense, into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Colossians 1.13 But seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Matthew 6.33 This implies that the kingdom is obtainable now by the believer, and that as it is obtained, these other things also are given to him. That Paul throughout his ministry preached the kingdom as a present reality is made clear from his words to the elders of Ephesus as he reminded them that for three years he had dwelt among them preaching the kingdom, Acts 20.25, and from the closing verses of the book of Acts. And he abode two whole years in his own hired dwelling and received all that went in unto him preaching the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, none forbidding him. Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. These verses disprove the idea that the kingdom is only future. Entrance into the kingdom is through regeneration. When we receive the new birth, we are born into the kingdom. Entrance into it is thus not through racial origin, nor church membership, nor even good works, but of God's choosing. Good works are the fruits and proof, not the cause of membership. The kingdom of God in this world is, of course, as yet far from its consummation. It is essentially an eschatological concept and reaches its goal only in the eternal state. It is begun here and it is perfected hereafter. The sovereignty of Christ is essentially a moral and spiritual sovereignty. It is the redemptive rule of God in the hearts of men, and wherever men are in a state of salvation, there Christ is King. That of which Christians have a foretaste in this life will be brought to perfection in the life to come. In other words, the messianic or mediatorial reign of Christ in this world has already begun. As the world becomes more and more Christian, the kingdom assumes an ever-increasing influence in the lives of men until, in a truly Christianized world, it will be the dominating and controlling factor. It was for the accomplishment of this purpose that all authority, in heaven and on earth, was given to Christ, and he in turn commanded his disciples to go and put this kingdom into effect by making disciples of all nations, promising that he would be with them always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Paul says, He must reign till he hath put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be abolished is death. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26. When this present stage of the kingdom has been completed and Christ's whole work of redemption has been accomplished, he will surrender the kingdom to the Father and then the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will reign throughout eternity in the perfected kingdom. And when all things have been subjected unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that did subject all things unto him, that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15.28 This then does not mean that there are two kingdoms, one on earth and the other in heaven, but rather that there are two states or phases of the same kingdom, and that its basic character is not altered by this transition. At the time of the first advent, the Jews expected the reestablishment of the Davidic kingdom as a world power, kingdom of Jewish supremacy. But such was not to be. Old Testament prophecy simply was not clear enough for them to form detailed ideas about the coming of the Messiah and the kind of kingdom that would be established. Even the disciples shared the notion of a political kingdom and disputed among themselves concerning the chief places. When Jesus announced to them that he must go to Jerusalem and be killed and the third day be raised up, Peter rebuked him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall never be unto thee. Matthew 16:22. But at Pentecost the disciples were delivered from that erroneous notion, and from that day on we hear nothing more from them concerning a worldly kingdom. But strange as it may seem, after nearly twenty centuries of enlightenment by the Holy Spirit, the same idea of a world power kingdom of Jewish supremacy has been taken up by all types of premillennialism and made the main plank in their system. Though the modern advocates have eliminated some of the grosser elements, they still look for a political and military kingdom with Christ sitting on a throne built by human hands in the earthly city of Jerusalem exercising a rod of iron rule, administering justice to the people, and dispensing those blessings which result so largely in world prosperity. But embellish it as they will, what an anticlimax it would be for the Lord Jesus to be brought down from the indescribably glorious throne in heaven, to occupy for a thousand years a cramped earthly throne of human origin. Premillennialism thus perverts the biblical doctrine of the return of Christ and misdirects the blessed hope of Christians to things earthly and temporal. It implements a vain hope of earthly dominance and glory in the hearts of its adherents and particularly in the hearts of the Jewish people, inspiring in them false hopes that can never be realized. Surely the Jewish people have suffered enough without this further deception. Nowhere in the Bible is such a kingdom promised to God's people on this earth, and any kingdom established and maintained by force is absolutely contrary to the spirituality of the kingdom as taught by Christ and the apostles. As we have already pointed out, the Old Testament prophecies which, taken literally, nourish or foster the earthly, nationalistic expectations of the Jews, are in the New Testament interpreted in a spiritual or universalistic sense. And is not this whole idea of bringing Christ down from his heavenly throne to rule in an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem only a childish attempt to give him now what they feel was unjustly denied to him at the first advent? What purpose could such a return serve? 
since none of those who were on earth at the time of his first advent and who were responsible for rejecting and crucifying him are now here. And since such a demotion from heaven to earth for one thousand years would be no honor at all, is not this whole idea only a lingering desire for that earthly kingdom that for so long fascinated the Jewish people? In other words, is not this whole system merely a resurgence of Judaism? We have seen that it was this desire for an earthly king more than any other one thing that caused the Jews to reject and crucify the Messiah. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that heaven is God's throne and that the earth is only his footstool. We may be sure that the earth will never become his throne. We insist that the idea of an earth-centered divine kingdom is wrong in principle. Now, as at the time of the first advent, that idea is doing untold harm in the church in that it promotes false doctrine, divides Christians, and causes them to dissipate their strength in controversies among themselves, when they should be working together to carry out the last great command to the church, the command to evangelize the world. When John the Baptist announced that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, it really was, and nothing that was done by the Jewish mob or the Roman army could prevent its being set up. The Old Testament prophecies and promises regarding the throne and kingdom of David are being fulfilled in Christ's reign in the church during this present age. He is now at the right hand of God, Romans 8.34, which is the position of power and influence, and his reign is made effective through the instrumentality of the Holy Spirit, who is the efficient agent of the Trinity in the present world order. In conformity with all this, the Westminster Confession states that the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 25, Section 2 In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, in answer to the question, How doth Christ execute the office of a king? says, Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This kingdom as it now exists in the world and of which the church is the outward manifestation is as yet in its preliminary stage. It will continue to advance through the present church age and it will come to fruition in all its glory in the heavenly state after the return of Christ. The kingdom of grace is already present the kingdom of glory will be manifested in due time. Chapter 13, page 290 The Millennium A fair example, we believe, of what the millennium, based on a literal interpretation of scripture, means to most premillennialists, is found in Gavin Hamilton's book, Maranatha, not to be confused with Floydie Hamilton. With the nations judged, Christendom purged, and Satan bound, he says the golden age will begin, and he gives the following outstanding features. First, there shall be peace on earth. The command to nations shall be issued, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah 2 verse 4. Disarmament shall be enforced. The nations shall learn war no more. Second, it will be a time of prosperity. Famines, poverty, lack of good food shall be things of the past. They belong to man's day. The ground shall yield her increase 
Every man shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. The seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, and the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due. Zechariah 8.12 Moreover God says, For brass I will bring gold, and for iron I will bring silver, and for wood, brass, and for stones, iron. Isaiah 60.17 All that men need shall be at their disposal in abundance. Third, longevity shall be restored. It is true that there shall be isolated cases both of sickness and death, for the king shall punish thus those who willfully disobey his word. This Isaiah and Zechariah plainly state. Isaiah 65:20 and Zechariah 14, verses 17-19. But in the main, long life shall be enjoyed. All redeemed ones that enter the kingdom shall never know sickness, pain, or death. They shall be alive at the end of the reign and pass into the eternal state. Fourth, creation shall be delivered from its present bondage. The curse shall be removed. This shall affect all the lower creation also. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Isaiah 65:25 and chapter 11 verses 8 and 9 No longer shall the bee sting, the dog bite, the serpent smite. No longer shall man be afraid of any creature. Indeed, the blessing of creation shall extend to the utmost bounds. Both winds and waves shall be under control. Nevermore shall volcanoes belch forth their burning lava. Hurricanes and tornadoes, tidal waves and stormy seas, earthquakes and earth tremors shall be unknown. The weather shall be perfect, with the seasons regulated for production of crops and the physical good of man. Fifth. The kingdom shall be run by the king and his people. It is highly probable that Paul the apostle shall be the prime minister. Some may not agree with this, and the twelve apostles of the Lamb, the cabinet. Then shall rank next those who have faithfully and sacrificially and affectionately served their Lord. All the nations shall be under his benign and benevolent sway, and all shall have their orders from him and through his own. A quote from pages 131 to 133. And Dr. Morgan, with typical eloquence, gives the following description of childhood in the millennium. What is the king's ideal for child life? Play. With what shall they play? With that from which today we carefully and necessarily guard our little ones. The weaned child shall put his hand on the baffling den while a little dimpled fist shall be entwined in the mane of the lion to lead about that royal playmate. A quote from God's Methods with Man, page 124. In our discussion of postmillennialism, we indicated what we believe the general features of the millennium will be. Hence, it will not be necessary to repeat those comments here. Another difficulty that arises in the premillennial system has to do with the large number of the wicked who lived during the millennium. They say that the sheep and goats judgment in Matthew 25 is the judgment of the nations that are in existence at the time Christ returns. Assuming this to be so, it then becomes clear that all of the evil nations are destroyed 
and presumably only a comparatively small minority, those which constitute the righteous nations, remain to enter the millennium. For Matthew says, And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Verse 46. The Jews remain, of course, according to this theory, but they are said to be converted at the mere sight of their Messiah. And the church, let it be remembered, was raptured out of the world before the tribulation began. Whence then come those evil nations over which, during the millennium, Christ is supposed to rule with a rod of iron? Are we to believe that during the blessed millennial reign of Christ, wickedness shall so increase from a comparatively small beginning that it will account for those nations that have to be kept down and which at the end of the millennium rise in an overwhelming rebellion. Surely this cannot be. Dispensationalism holds that during each of six preceding dispensations man has been tested regarding some distinctive principle, but that each time he has failed, proving that no human system will work. During this seventh dispensation, or kingdom age, God is supposed to show what he can do with a world under divine rule. But according to their reasoning, it would seem that the millennium proves to be as great a failure as each of the preceding dispensations is alleged to have been. There is no adequate explanation for the vast population that is supposed to exist during the millennium. The wicked nations, which are assumed to be the large majority, the world having grown worse and worse before the coming of Christ, are sent to perdition at the beginning of the millennium and the resurrected and translated saints will not have bodies capable of giving birth to children for Jesus said the sons of this world marry and are given in marriage but they that are accounted worthy to attain that world and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage for neither can they die any more for they are equal unto the angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection Luke 20 verses 34 to 36 Those who enter the millennial kingdom are only the Jews and that minority of nations that are friendly to the Jews during the great tribulation. In fact, it would seem that during the millennium the Jews are to constitute a much larger proportion of the world's population than they do now. The Rod of Iron Rule a distinctive doctrine of all types of premillennialism is the claim that during the millennium peace will be maintained throughout the earth by Christ's rod of iron rule over nations and individuals. But that the real meaning of these words is quite different from that generally understood is brought out by Floyd E. Hamilton. His explanation is as follows, and since this deals with an important phase of premillennialism, we quote him quite fully. One of the fundamental claims of the premillennialists is that the Messiah will rule over the nations, that is, the Gentile nations, from his millennial capital, Jerusalem, with a stern, just rule, with a rod of iron, symbolizing forceful, effective rule over people who are rebellious at heart, but who are forced to bow to the messianic rule against their wills. Quoted from Gabeline, The Return of the Lord, page 108. At the close of the alleged millennium, Satan is said to gather them to war against the saints, Revelation 20, verse 8, in number as the sands of the sea. This thought of a stern, just rule over rebellious nations during the millennium is taken from the English translation of three passages in the Revelation, namely, 
He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers. Chapter 2, verse 27. And she was delivered of a son, a man-child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and unto his throne. Chapter 12, verse 5. And out of his mouth proceedeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God, the Almighty. Chapter 19, verse 15. At first sight, the premillennial argument from these passages for a stern, harsh, but just reign of the Messiah over the Gentile nations during the millennium seems peculiarly strong, particularly the Revelation 12, verse 5 passage. So important is this rod of iron rule for the premillennial theory that if the evidence for it breaks down, it would seem to destroy almost the very heart of the premillennial theory. Hamilton points out that the Greek word is translated rule in the English versions. The question for discussion then, he says, is whether the word rule correctly translates the Greek word. In seven of the eleven instances of the use of the Greek word in the New Testament, it is actually translated feed. These instances are Luke 17:7, 7, John 21:16, Acts 20:28. 20, 1 Corinthians 9, 7, 1 Peter 5, 2, Jude 12, and Revelation 7, 17. In Matthew 2, 6, it is translated, Who shall rule my people Israel? But the revised version gives, Who shall be shepherd of my people Israel? That leaves only three rod of iron passages in Revelation to be translated rule. In the New Testament, there are three words from the same root as poimenio. The words are poiminion, flock, poimeni, flock, and poimen, shepherd. Apparently these words with the verb poimenio are always connected with flocks and shepherds and the care of flocks. The word is used once for feeding cattle, so it was apparently used for feeding any animals or caring for them. We must notice that in 39 instances of the use of these four words from the same root, it always elsewhere means flock, shepherd, or caring for the flock in some way, once in connection with the cattle, so the word apparently had a fixed meaning. Let us now turn to the words rod of iron to look for further light on the passage in question. The Concise Bible Dictionary, published in connection with the Nelson Bible, says the following in regard to the rod. The rod and staff of Psalm 23 verse 4 probably refer to two instruments still used by eastern shepherds. The first, a heavy-headed club for driving off wild animals. The second, a curved stick for guiding the sheep. The shepherd of Palestine carried an oak staff six feet long and a weapon in the form of an oak club two feet long the rod of Psalm 23, verse 4, the thick end of which is studded with nails. The student's commentary says, on page 314, he is provided with a club and a crook. Demolo's commentary says, the rod was a sort of oaken club for defense, the staff a longer pole for use in climbing or leaning upon, and the eastern shepherd still carries both. 
All this seems to show that the rod of iron used in connection with the shepherd word, pominoyo, refers not to ruling over the nations with a rod of iron, but to acting toward the nations as a shepherd would act toward wild animals attacking the sheep. How would a shepherd act toward the enemies of the sheep? Certainly by using his rod to dash them to pieces if he could do so. Now for the meaning of the Greek word, since it is really equivalent to being a shepherd, we suggest that a meaning which would exactly fit the root meaning of the word and the context in every place where it is used in the New Testament is to act the part of a shepherd. In this case, in these rod of iron passages, it should be translated, He shall act the part of a shepherd toward the nations with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to shivers. Revelation 12, verse 5. That is, the Messiah, to protect his flock, the true people of God, from their enemies, will execute vengeance on the unbelieving nations who have been persecuting God's people. Just as a shepherd would, in righteous wrath, dash out the brain of the wild beasts who were tearing the lambs to pieces, so the Messiah will vindicate his people with a terrible scene of vengeance upon the enemies of God's people. In other words, we have a picture of a terrible judgment visited on the wicked nations who have been troubling Christian saints, the little flock of Jesus Christ. The shepherd may perhaps be said to rule over the flock in a kindly protecting way, but not with his rod, and he certainly does not dash his flock to pieces as a potter's vessel is broken to shivers. A shepherd's rule over his flock is peaceful and loving, not stern or harsh. Imagine a true shepherd striking his sheep with a rod of iron. Sheep have delicate bones, easily broken with a blow of a club. Is it not obvious, even if we did not know these rods are used only to protect the flock from their enemies, that a shepherd would not use his rod of iron against his flock? If the Gentile nations are the object of the shepherd's activity with the rod of iron, then the only possible activity in view of the context is that he should strike them with the rod of iron. Thus we see that the rod of iron passages give no justification for thinking that the Messiah will rule over the unbelieving nations with a rod of iron during some future kingdom period. This meaning gives us exactly the same picture as that of 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 7 through 10. When Christ comes, rendering vengeance to them that know not God, and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus, who shall suffer punishment, even eternal destruction from the face of the Lord. Thus we see that the rod of iron passages give us no justification for thinking that the Messiah will rule over unbelieving nations with a rod of iron during some future kingdom period. These passages all refer to the same picture of vengeance taken by God against the persecutors of God's elect church. The Revelation 19.15 passage when translated, And out of his mouth proceedeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall act the part of a shepherd, or he shall act as a shepherd would act toward them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God the Almighty, gives us a unified picture of just vengeance against the wicked nations who have followed Satan in war against the saints before the rapture. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. 
SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.